got two readings this evening. The first one is Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I'll create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. The next reading is Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's word. If you want to um, keep a finger in Luke, we're going to begin there. Let's pray. Father God, please would you help us tonight. Father, we need to be able to, to see and to understand and to have a real grasp on the promised future if we are to live hopeful, courageous, exciting lives in the present. 
So we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. And more than that, we pray that you would impress on our hearts the truths that go into our minds. Amen. FOMO. That's where we are tonight. The fear of missing out. It's the fear that means you go on the night out when you're wrecked and you just need to go to bed, but it might be a great night. And so you, you can't stay in. It's the fear that means uh, you just don't accept the invitation because you never know. Something better could still come along. And so you wait and you wait and you wait. Now, of all the fears that we could choose to address in these four weeks, looking at the, the fears that, that affect our lives, you'd think that does seem a little bit on the trivial end of the scale. Last week, we were thinking about terrorism and the fear of physical danger. This week, FOMO. But there's a reason for going for this, and that is that actually, when you think about the things that shape the way that we live day to day, this is a very, very real issue. And for many of us, actually, I think that this is one of the key fears that stops us from making spiritual progress. Now, uh, for some of us, I guess we are uh, metaphorically standing on the edge. We've, We've been looking into Christian things. We've become convinced, yep. The evidence does seem to stack up that Jesus Christ lived the real life, that he died on a cross for sins, and he really did rise again. And we're at the point of committing our life to him. But the truth is, it's a hectic big step, and it will mean some huge changes. It's going to cost us an awful lot. And as we stand on the edge and contemplate going for it, just not sure it'll be worth it. We fear we will miss out on a huge amount if we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. And that fear of missing out, it's stopping us committing to him and receiving eternal life. Others of us who'd call ourselves Christians, whatever we sing in church on a Sunday, Monday to Saturday, actually the hopes and, and the driving ambitions of our lives are exactly the same as everybody else around us. We want out of life what everybody else wants out of life. And we fear that if if I really obey Jesus, if I really go for it as a Christian, if I really serve and sacrifice like the Bible calls me to, that I'm going to miss out. And it won't prove worth it in the end. And so we hold back. And I guess a lot of us, we live half-hearted, sort of mediocre Christian lives. Holding back from anything that's too radical hedging our bets because we're worried if we really give to God what God asks for, if we really do what the Bible encourages us, that we will miss out and we'll look back and regret how we've lived. And so I want us to look uh, tonight briefly at two passages rather than one as we usually do that address this fear. I'll show you why we're going for two passages um, as we go along. And these passages, they call us to trust Jesus, but more than that, they show us why, if you live for Jesus, you will not miss out. So when I talk about FOMO, I'm talking about something a little bit more serious than just the, uh, maybe I'll regret it if I don't go for this night out. I'm talking about the big life decisions. So firstly, uh, turn to Luke with me, Luke 12, 32 to 34. So in Luke 12, uh, Luke is teaching mainly in this chapter about the, if you're going to follow Jesus, he says, it's about living for the future. He says there's a great eternal reward, but it does mean sacrifice in the here and now. And in verses uh, 22 to 31, he, he's basically telling them, don't worry about this life. Don't worry about this life. 
Don't worry about the basic necessities, like you know, where will I find clothes, how will I eat, those things. He says, don't worry, because God knows that you need them and God will provide for them. Verse 29. And don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. The pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. In other words, when you know the God who sustains the entire universe as your father, you ought to come to the concerns of how will I live, what's going to happen, a little bit differently from those who think there is no God at all. I'm guessing that when Richard Branson's children were at university and ran out of money because they overspent at the start of term, they were a little bit less anxious than the rest of us because they knew their father had a bob or two to put it bluntly. He then sharpens his point in the final three verses. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to give generously of your money and your time to serving God and others. Don't be afraid that you'll miss out if you do that. Why? Well, we'll come to the answer, but it's important to recognize, although he talks about money here, throughout Luke 12, uh, he actually talks much more broadly. And in the rest of Luke, although it's, it says money here, his point is much broader. He's not just saying, uh, don't be afraid to give money. He's saying, look, don't be afraid to, to sacrifice whatever is treasured for the kingdom of God. Give generously, serve and sacrifice all you have for others, because there is a reward, a heavenly reward Verse 33, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. Jesus' command is pretty simple. Give generously and don't worry. But, <laughs> but what if I give sacrificially and it means I never actually manage to save up for a house deposit in central London because the prices keep rising? What, what if I commit to being at International Cafe and helping there every Friday night and it means I miss out on opportunities to meet a partner? Uh, what, if, what if I get involved with um, sharing the gospel at work and inviting colleagues to, to a lunchtime Bible talk and I get sidelined a bit because they just think you're a bit of a religious weirdo. We're not sure you're really on board. Part of the answer comes in verse 31. Seek his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. But that's not a blanket promise. There are plenty of people who gave up realistic prospects of marriage to serve God on the mission field or to help serve in a little church in an unreached part of this country who never got married. There are plenty of people who've given sacrificially for year after year after year and not seen God miraculously provide the things that they had given up. There are those who gave sacrificially and it just cost. But two verses later, Jesus gives the second half of the answer. And these are the words that really should drive out fear of missing out when we're worried about whether serving God will be worth it. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. We may indeed miss out on all sorts of things in the here and now, if we give our lives to serving Jesus. 
but God is no man's debtor. And sacrifices in this life will turn out to be investments in the kingdom of God. Investments that pay out spectacularly for all eternity. But at this point, you and I have a problem, most of us. At this point, we've got a problem. We can understand Jesus' words with our heads, but it doesn't tend to make a big impact on our hearts. And the reason for this disconnect, the reason that we don't often feel the force of Jesus' words in our hearts, the reason it doesn't change the way that we live, is that we have such a sort of weak, shriveled, diminished view of what the kingdom of God, of what heaven, of what the new creation would be like. And I can't imagine how foregoing stuff I really want in this life will ever be made up for by stuff in, well, the life to come, because we view it the way that Hollywood does. You know, it's all kind of soft lights and serene people gliding around in flowing robes. Nothing loud, nothing bright, nothing too bold. And everybody's always barefoot for some reason. It's like the elves in The Lord of the Rings. It's all serene and spiritual, but got to be honest, a bit dull. And you think, why on earth would that make up for giving up real stuff I want here and now? I mean, seriously. It's no surprise that we're not excited by heaven when, when that's the extent of our view of it. It's no surprise we're not motivated to sacrifice. It's no surprise that we fear we're missing out if we live for God. And unless you and I get a solid grasp on, on what God has promised us for the future, we'll have nothing to motivate us to make the plunge, to serve and sacrifice for Christ now. And we have no hope to offer the world around us because our lives will be driven by the same hopes that their lives are driven by. And we'll be gripped by the same fear of losing those things that everybody else is. We'll be incapable of living wholeheartedly for God now because we'll be afraid that to do so means I will miss out. And that's why we're going to turn to Isaiah. Because Isaiah, if you like, fills in the picture for us. Because Isaiah is one of the the great passages, Isaiah 65. There are lots we could turn to, but this is one of the great passages which shows us what this heavenly kingdom will look like. And Jesus, in one sense, he kind of assumes that we've read the Old Testament as he speaks to this Jewish audience. Now, people who worry, warriors amongst us, it tends to be people with a very good imagination, but not enough optimism. That's what makes for a warrior. You've got a very good imagination. You can see all the things that might go wrong, but you don't have enough optimism. So what we're going to do is allow the vision of Isaiah to drive our imaginations, employ our imaginations for something better as we explore his vision of God's heavenly kingdom. Uh, So there you go, three points from Isaiah. Firstly, creation 2.0, Isaiah 65 and verse 17, page 753. Verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. The first sentence of the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we read, God promises that the day is coming when he will roll up his sleeves again. And with a power that is matched by his delight, he will sing out a new word of creation. And he'll create a new heavens and a new earth, only better than this one. 
a permanent one that won't just be very good, but will be perfect. Perfect. It's a mind-boggling thought. There will come a day when physical matter will just cease to be because God will say, enough, and everything will disappear, every atom. And then God will speak another word and a new cosmos will appear. There's a surprising amount we can learn from just these few words. Firstly, uh, we know from verse 17 it will be physical, partly because he says a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, like the present stars and like the present earth. God's not going to get rid of physical matter. We're not going to trade a real physical life for a sort of spiritual, floaty, ghost-like existence. There'll be another version of what we have now. There'll be a degree of continuity. It'll be the universe, creation 2.0. Actually, the word that's uh, used three times there in those verses for create is a word that in the Bible is only ever used of two things. God is the, always the, the, sub, the, um, the doer, the subject of it, and it's always physical matter that's created. Creation always involves God, the word to create in the Bible, and it always involves the making of something solid and real. So we know it's going to be uh, solid, but it'll be better. It won't just be a tune-up of this. It's not going to be creation 1.2, you know, just a patch-up job on what we've got now. It'll be a total start from scratch. It'll be in some ways like everything that's unspoilt and perfect in this creation, but better and newer and brighter and more permanent. And God will be able to say perfect of this new creation. When it says in verse 17, the former things will not be remembered. He's not saying that we'll have our memories wiped and you'll see people that you loved on earth and just have no recollection of them at all. He's, it's a way of saying um, what comes up in verse 18 to 19, that heaven will be a place of rejoicing, of gladness, and of delight. So his point is that nothing in the new creation will remind us of the sin, the misery, the pain, and the disappointments that fill this life for so many of us with so much crying. That's his point. It's not that you won't remember the good things. It says nothing will remind you of the things that right now you would do anything to change, to get rid of, to wipe away. One day that will happen. There'll be a new Jerusalem also, we're told, in this new world. Uh, Jerusalem is the city in the Old Testament where God symbolically dwelt. And verse 18, halfway through, I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. At the heart of the Bible's vision of the new creation, in other words, is us dwelling with God which might sound a little bit obvious. Yeah, God's going to be in heaven. Duh, thanks. Um, could have worked that one out myself. But actually, I think that when we think of heaven, often God is an afterthought. You know, you say heaven and, you know, you think of that perfect sugar sand beach, warm water lapping at your toes, just a gently cooling breeze rustling the palm fronds and an unbroken azure expanse of sky over your head or cold, crisp air in your lungs as you stand at the top of the slope. Fresh, untracked powder below you, skis strapped to your feet. And to be honest, God's only job is to make it snow at night and the sunshine in the day. And so long as he's doing that, I don't really care. It's, that's the way we often think, isn't it? But here, God is at the center of the vision of heaven. You see, the reason that heaven, the new creation, will be so spectacular, so unmissable, is because it's the kind of place 
that'll be made by a God who is as rich and generous and creative and powerful and as adventurous and as fun as the God of the Bible is. And you don't therefore want to miss out on the greatest thing of all, which is to know that God face to face. And just as he made us to find our deepest joy and fulfillment in knowing him, so we will enjoy that fully in eternity. He made us to be most richly fulfilled when we know him perfectly. And our deepest longings, actually, the deepest longings you now have are echoes of your longing for God. A longing that will be perfectly fulfilled when we see Christ face to face. Now, that God would uh, be our delight, it makes sense. He's the most rich, beautiful being in existence, that we would delight in him. Yeah, that, that I get. But do you see verse 19? says, God says, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. God will delight over us. Now, that is slightly odd. The God who can see the darkest, most miserable, ugliest thoughts in our hearts, the things that if people here could see them, we would just never, ever come back again. That God who can see right into our hearts, the murkiest depths of our souls, he will be thrilled and beam with joy when he sees you. Now that makes very little sense. I think the picture is that you imagine a teenager who rebels against loving parents and just destroys themselves. Drug addiction, multiple abusive partners, and ends up basically as a slave, abused and used by a criminal gang. Health wrecked by drug abuse and all sorts of beatings. A skeletal, wraith-like, almost dead little being. Emotionally wrecked, physically destroyed, close to death. But the father, he has never stopped searching. And he eventually finds and rescues this poor creature from this criminal gang. And and gently carries them to a hospital and rehab center where... um, where although they're close to death, they can be gently nurtured back to life and, and slowly the color returns to the skin and, and weight comes back on and, and the, the glazed eyes get their life back. The hair returns and, and slowly after months of rehab, after months of treatment, after months of medical care, the day comes when they're well enough to be returned home and they're able to walk out of the hospital and the father sees the child that he's rescued, alive and the way that they should be again, and beams with joy and just gathers them up in her arms and takes them home. You see, the day we walk into heaven, we will be transformed. All the sinful filth and nonsense will be gone. And God has seen in his mind's eye what we'll be like when he saved us He saw us not just as we are, sinful wretches, but as we will be. And one day, the day we arrive in the new creation, we will be the way God always knew we would be. The way he planned and promised for us to be. And he will see us perfectly reflecting his image. He will see us full of the joy and delight of being free of sin. He will see us the way he created us to be. And God will delight and beam with joy. We, the redeemed, will be trophies of grace. And God will be thrilled at what he has done for us. 
We will rejoice in God and God will rejoice in you. Creation 2.0 will be a great thing to look forward to. And in it, we will live long and prosper. One for the Trekkies amongst you. Uh, These central verses are basically a wonderfully poetic way of saying we will live forever, but that eternal life will be anything but boring. We'll live forever and it will be anything but boring. Look with me. Verse 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Now we need to remember this is poetry. When it says in verse 20 that uh, people who die at 100, it's not saying people will die in the new creation. He's giving examples of things that cause sorrow in the current creation that won't be in the new creation. And he's using images we can get our heads around to things that are just beyond our imagination. Think death won't be there. No longer will anybody uh, cradle a newborn infant, tiny enough to fit in a hand, stuffed full of tubes in a neonatal unit before it just gives up on life after two or three tragic days. No one will retire from work early to spend time with their family only for an aggressive and curable tumor to rip them away after six months. In Isaiah's day, to live 100 years was a big deal. But he's saying, look, to live 100 years in the new creation, it'd be like being a child. Indeed, verse 22 says, we will live like trees. Now, his point is not to be literalistic. But hey, let's get literalistic for once. Um, And here's a picture of a tree. That is not just any tree. That is Methuselah, which is a great basin bristlecone pine tree. It is 4,848 years old. There was an older tree than this one, uh, just in the same grove, but a scientist cut it down to check how old it really was. Found out it was 4,900 years old when they cut it down. Yeah, not so good. Um, So uh, we have to make do with second best. 4,848 years. In other words, when the sapling first poked its green shoots above the earth in 2,834 BC, there were no pyramids in Egypt and Stonehenge was considered a new build. I kid you not. Look what the nouveau riche have put up in Wiltshire. It's just disgusting. Uh, Isaiah is clear. You can read in Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, that God will swallow up death forever. We won't die. This is just an image. But even if we only lived as long as that tree, imagine 4,848 years. You could build a house. You could plant a forest of slow-growing trees. You could prepare the soil and plant a vineyard. You could dig a cellar while you waited for the vines to grow. You could set down the wine for 60 years and still have a good 4,600 years to enjoy it all. 
Even if you're as rubbish at DIY as I am, you could still spend two and a half centuries just learning to build. I mean, I've got to be able to put up straight shelves after two and a half centuries of practice. We will live, and it'll be as if we're as long as the trees. And key to this vision is verses 21 and 23, which they actually make a very similar point. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants. There will be work, a toil, labor, but it won't be in vain. It'll be fulfilling and worthwhile, and partly it is because we will build the houses, and it won't be other people who live in them. We will plant the vineyards, and we will drink the wine. It's one of the great frustrations of work is you do all the work and somebody else so often gets the benefit. That won't happen in the new creation. And the work itself won't be pointless or vain because the curse that fell on work in Genesis 3 will have gone completely. Now, it is hard to get our heads around living forever. Actually, those of us who who think most deeply on it are often just terrified by the thought of it. We can't imagine it being anything other than awful terrifying or just dull. I think perhaps it's just beyond us at the moment, which is why instead of telling us positively what it would be like, the Bible tends to give us the negatives, the things that won't be there, the things that will be missing. Never that feeling on the last morning of a holiday, the fun is over and it's back to work tomorrow. Never that sense of the autumn of life, The days are getting shorter. The years are passing quicker and quicker and quicker. The sand in the hourglass of my life is starting to go a little bit faster now. Never that sense that the body is creaking and all the personal bests are somewhere in the past. And it's never going to be any better than it was a couple of years ago. Never that feeling. And of course, no death lurking ominously on the horizon, approaching a little more every day. There'll never be a relationship cut off in the new creation. There'll never be a funeral, and there'll be no cemeteries in the new creation. Why will we live so long? Because, verse 23, God's blessing will be upon us. Death is part of the curse that came into the old world, this world, because our ancestor Adam rejected the God of life. All death is a curse, not just the early death that he talks about in verse 20. But we will be a people blessed by the Lord, verse 23. We will live, if you like, as long as the trees, because once again we will have access to the tree of life, and we will eat its fruit. He carries on, verse 24. Before they call, God says, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The point is not so much that God has ESP. We know God can read our thoughts. It's that in the new creation, God won't need to grow our faith in him by making us pray and wait and long for the answers. There'll be no need for any of that. God will give us everything we need instantly. It'll be creation 2.0. We'll live long and prosper, and they will all live happily ever after. Verse 25. This is classic Bible language for the restoration and reconciliation of the natural order. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. 
wolves and lambs eat together in this world. Only when they do so, there's only one of them doing the eating. But it'll be very, very different in the new creation. Very different. It'll be a world where a gangling newborn lamb will be perfectly safe frolicking in a pack of wolves. There won't be predators and prey. Now, whether it's perfectly literal or metaphorical, I just don't know. But it does seem that there'll be some radical differences in the new creation. So decay and death don't seem to be part of the plan. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. It seems like animals won't need to kill each other for food. Uh, What that means for human food, I don't know. I know for a number of us, the thought of an eternity without a bacon sandwich is, is not something we, we can really get excited about. However, um, however, again, turn to Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. Fear not, the same new creation is described there as a great banquet with aged wine and the best of meat. How it will work, I don't know. It may be that lettuce will taste like bacon um, or like tree bark will be fillet steak. I have no idea, but you know what? You can leave that to God. He can work these details out. The slightly odd note, though, I wonder if you noticed it there in verse 25. The slightly odd note is in the middle, and dust will be the serpent's food. Why, if wolves get to play with lambs, do serpents get the downer? Why are they still, you know, not getting a great time? Well, the answer, of course, is that he means more than the... uh, the reptile species serpents. When Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was in the form of a snake. And the curse on Satan, the snake, who brought evil, misery, and death into this world, mentions exactly the same things as this verse. Look at verse 25, and let me read from Genesis 3, God's curse. So the Lord said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, Satan will not be part of the new creation. He will be eating dust. He will be suffering in hell the rightful punishment for his wicked behavior. He will not be let loose. Which means you and I will not be able to be tempted in the new creation. Extraordinary. You'll see a stunningly attractive person and not feel an ounce of lust. You'll see somebody who is far more talented than you at the things you love doing. And you'll just be thrilled with their abilities and not feel any resentment. There'll be no temptation, no sin, because there'll be no serpent So there we go. We are heading to an eternal feast in God's garden city. It'll be filled with believers from every culture. And at the heart of the creation, we'll find all of God and the blessings that come through him. And none of sin and the misery and death that comes through it. So what should we do in the light of it? We should look forward with hope. But it does mean we need to fill our hearts with heaven. When someone's going on a really, really awesome trip, a friend of mine had a sabbatical last year and um, depressingly posted all over Facebook. Um, I don't know how he had any friends left at the end of it, to be perfectly honest, as he traveled through 
Southeast Asia and around Australia and New Zealand. But for months beforehand, his family had a countdown chart and the kids um, had posters on their bedroom walls of the places they were going to get them excited about the trip. We will never be excited about what is going to be ours in the new creation if we never fill our hearts and our minds with it. We need to do the hard work of mining the scriptures to understand what is promised so that our hearts are driven by the hope of what is to come. Spend time praying and thinking through what God is offering you. If you want to be better at coping with the difficulties and disappointments, the tragic, crushing disappointments that come to all of us at different points in life, then you need a firmer grasp of the hope of heaven. The more our hearts are set up there, the less we will be hostages to what happens down here. And when you've got that to look forward to, you don't need to fear that if I commit, if I step over the edge, if I really go for it with living for Jesus Christ, that I will miss out. When you know that's coming. There's a great quote from the Puritan writer Thomas Brooks who says, For a close, remember this, your life is short, your duties are many, your assistance is great and your reward is sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. So I've really got two questions for you, as, um, for all of us actually, as we close. Two questions that it would be great to discuss this week to discuss over coffee. What would God have to promise you for a life of sacrificial service to be worth it? Think of the things you most long for from this life. If serving God were to mean missing out on some of those, what would God have to promise you for it to feel worthwhile? Secondly, what would you do in the next five years and the next 25 years, if you are utterly convinced of God's heavenly reward? What would you do in the next five years? What would you do in the next 25 years if you are utterly convinced that God's heavenly reward will be as good as God says? I was, uh, I was reading this week um, about a couple of Iranian Christian women who met at a conference for underground believers in Turkey and they spent the last three years um, handing out, from uh, 2006 to 2009, secretly handing out copies of the New Testament um, in Tehran, in the capital, and uh, in some of the surrounding towns. Over the course of three years, they handed out 20,000 copies of the New Testament in one-to-one conversations. And why on earth would you do that when to do it means risking your life? Because they knew where they were heading. They were actually um, they were in, arrested in 2009 and thrown into prison, um, uh, the, the Evan prison in Tehran, which is a horrific place, utterly horrific. And yet they said this about their time. Most amazing of all, we were in the best place we'd ever been for witnessing to people. Uh, we'd spent ourselves, to be honest, traveling all over the country, and now we were stuck in jail. God was bringing us the spiritual seekers. The living conditions weren't very good. That is an understatement. But we didn't have to deal with travel and traffic. <laughs> and we could tell our fellow prisoners the story of Jesus openly, because no one would come into this rat hole to spy on us. There were no secret police in there. 
That is how liberated people get when they really know what is promised for them afterwards. Who cares? A few years in prison compared with an eternity with the Lord Jesus. Be free from the fear of missing out. Give yourself to serving God and see if he doesn't reward you richly. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the promise that you give. The promise of an eternity with you in a new creation. We thank you that you have begun already, that the Lord Jesus is the first fruit. That his body are the first atoms of this new creation. And one day you will make an entire cosmos suitable for those who will live forever in eternal joy. Father, help us to live by faith and to look for your heavenly reward. Help us to see sacrifice as investment. Set us free, we pray, from the the fear that uh, if we miss out on things in this life, that we'll regret it. Help us to see how rich your rewards are and to see in the resurrection of Jesus the certainty that you will fulfill all your promises. Amen.